Good morning. Great to see you. Appreciate you being here. Uh, we're going to continue in our series. Last week, Pastor Kevin talked about who Jesus is specifically and, and the fact that the realization that everything the Father is in his nature, Jesus is. Everything, that, it, it's sort of a big deal. It's really breathtaking. Everything the Father is, Jesus is in his nature. Don't know what you would normally call breathtaking, maybe a, a sunrise over the ocean, maybe a snow-capped mountain peak, but the transcendence of Jesus, his glory, his power, the fact that he could create all that there is and sustains all that there is, that's breathtaking. We looked last week as well about what Paul said about he, the fact that he's the one in whom all the fullness dwells. The Greek word there for fullness is the word pleroma. It really was a buzzword at that time. Everybody was talking about it, pleroma. What, it was what everyone was looking for. Now we may not call it by that name today, but it's still what everyone's looking for, fullness. Nobody wants to run on empty. I just was teaching last week out of Jeremiah 2 and, and where the people of Israel are described as having walked after emptiness and they became empty. Walked after emptiness, became empty. Now, they didn't purposely go after emptiness. They were choosing things they thought would give them fullness, which is what so many people do. They walk after things they think will fill them, but in fact, they bring emptiness Everybody wants fullness, to have something that really matters, that makes a difference, that brings real meaning and purpose to us. Well, Jesus, Jesus has fullness, and not just any fullness. He has the fullness of his Father, which really is breathtaking. And then to realize that even though we were alienated and hostile in mind, as Paul describes us here in Colossians 1, Jesus reconciled us to himself. How amazing that he would even want us, but then to actually make us right with him. And then to think that one day he'll present us, one day holy and blameless and beyond reproach. It's interesting that Paul lists those out there. It's like he's saying, hey, just in case the word holy doesn't quite hit home, <laughs> he's also made you blameless. And just in case blameless isn't enough to tell you what Christ has done for you, you're also made beyond reproach. And that's how we'll appear before him at the final judgment. Whew, that's some relief, isn't it? Holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Those who were alienated and hostile in mind, he transformed us. And when you have a glimpse of those two facts, his transcendence and the fact that he transformed us, you've got to do something with that, right? It, it just can't sit there. It's, it's a wow factor for sure, but it's more than just a wow factor. What, how does his transcendence and the fact that he transformed us impact our lives? I, I think we see how it impacts Paul's lives as he continues in verse 24 of chapter one, Colossians, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. So right at the beginning of verse 24, he says now. So if he stopped right there, what's next, what he's going to say in these two verses is what is tied to what he has just said. It's in response to 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 what he's told us already. And there's this big shift that goes on. We go from the transcendence of Jesus to Paul's life. So seeing Jesus for who he is and knowing what he's done for us, now what? And here's what Paul says about his own life. In light of those two truths, he talks about his mission, about the job he's been given to do. Look at how he responded. He said, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And immediately, Paul's like, those truths impact the way I'm living. I live for others, which is a response that all of us should have in light of those truths. Maybe we're in different circumstances, maybe played out differently in our lives, but still the right response to those two truths is that we will live for others for the sake of the church and for the sake of those who don't know Jesus yet. And for Paul, what a way to do it, right? I rejoice in my sufferings. Well, it sounds really spiritual, right? Almost sounds too spiritual. Like he's so spiritual, he's above it all. Almost sounds like he's out of touch with reality. But that's not the idea here. You know, you can be discouraged and still have joy. Paul once described himself as afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. He also said he had known great sorrow and unceasing grief. Now, this is the same guy, if you remember, that told us to rejoice always. Great sorrow and unceasing grief. Because even in his sorrow, even in his grief, even when he was perplexed, he still never lost his joy. The joy of knowing that God's in control. Knowing that whatever is happening is all for his purposes. Here he says he's suffering for their sake. Suffering for others' sake so that others will hear the good news. Who Jesus is. And what he did for us is great news. But in, in order for it to have an impact, other people have to hear it. That's the goal. As Paul sits there right at that moment, imprisoned, he saw beyond his own struggles to know he was suffering for the sake of others. He was doing it for the church. And you look at Paul's life and realize that what was driving him should drive us also for the sake of the ministry, doing whatever we can. Again, we're not necessarily given the same circumstances Paul had, but all of us as believers have been given the job of doing what we can for our brothers and sisters in Christ with the ultimate goal of seeing others come to know him. That's what we're about because we serve a transcendent savior who has transformed us. That should get us going. That should motivate us. It should cause us to think about how we're spending our time, how we're spending our lives. 
If we're motivated by anything else, by ego, by perceived needs, by whatever, at some point that's gonna come up empty. At some point we're gonna burn out. But if the transcendence of Jesus and, and the transformation he's brought to us is our motivation, that's enough to keep us going for the rest of our lives. No matter what our circumstances may be. Paul goes on to say he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What? <laughs> filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? I thought Jesus provided everything we needed for salvation. And he did. It's not like we do anything to fill in the gap of, of what Jesus provided. There is no gap. But some have imagined something else here. Some have imagined the idea of what is, is called purgatory. You know, primarily the Roman Catholic Church has, believes this place of punishment where souls go, die, and, and, and through suffering, they make satisfaction for past sins and then become fit for heaven. But there's no such place as purgatory in scripture. And there's no idea of that here. And there's some obvious issues with that idea here. Think about it. First of all, there's no way that you and I can suffer and make up for our sin. You know, because we're still flawed, right? And if you remember all the way back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament law and the requirements there for sacrifices to, to cover sin, even temporarily, it, what was it? It was a spotless lamb. It was a, an animal that was not flawed. We've got flaws. We, we can't make up for our, our sin. The reason Jesus, was, Jesus' sacrifice was required because he was flawless. We can't do it. In fact, it's pride that tells us our suffering would somehow make up for our sins. Which is a sin in itself, right? So it's circular. How, could our, how would our suffering save us if it just creates pride? It can't. And think about it. Paul had just finished throw, showing us that Christ alone is sufficient to reconcile us to God. He transformed us. He made us holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. And that's, again, the way we're going to appear before the judgment seat one day. And we are made that way because of Christ, not because of something we do in this life or something we do after this life. He transformed us. There's no need for us to fill in the gap for our sins, even if we could. And the idea that we could do something to accomplish our salvation was exactly what Paul was arguing about in this letter. To suggest now that we somehow pay a price that helps us gain salvation after death, it's totally foreign to the context. No, Jesus completely satisfied the Father's requirements for salvation. So this isn't talking about completing the work necessary for salvation. And by the way, the suffering that Paul's talking about is the suffering he's experiencing right then, not after death. See, there's all kinds of reasons this is not referring to something after we die. He's talking about how since Jesus provided salvation, the message has to get out. 
And sometimes that message has to get out through our sacrifice, things that cost us, cost us time. You notice he said that he was doing this, he was doing his share. Guess what? There's more share to take on. It's our share now to accomplish, to get the message out so that others can hear and come to Christ. Paul is so excited and so driven to fulfill his ministry. He has one job, which is the preaching of the word of God. So let me ask you, what's God given you to do? We're all called to serve. We're all called, we're all motivated, should be, by our transcendent Savior and by the transformation he brought us. So what's the role you're given to do? What's your job? We don't want to mess that up, do we? Not exactly Asia, right? Back to school. Not, not a good idea. You know, don't mess up your superheroes, okay? <laughs> I don't know who did that, man. You, you talk about, you know, we look at something like that, we just think, wow, that, those are crazy. And there are thousands of those online. You can find, you know, pictures all over the place that job fails. The thing I find funny about them, though, isn't just the picture itself. It's, it's, it's realizing, I sort of cringe when I say that because I think, boy, that's something I could do. You know, I could end up making a mistake like that so easily. And, and so I, I feel for those people. We don't want to fail at the, at the most important job we could possibly have. We've all got one job. It's played out different ways, but we've all got the same job to serve each other in order to be more effective in reaching those who don't know Jesus yet. That's what Paul's job was. He wanted to spread the good news, which meant proclaiming this great mystery, verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known was the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. So Paul is like, hey, I'm proclaiming Jesus. And, and what once was a mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, you know, that's now been revealed. People now begin to understand in the New Testament what that's all about. See, some have understood as they look at that, he's talking just about Gentiles. The fact that Gentiles, those non-Jewish people had, had, had appeared to be excluded from a relationship with God but it had been God's plan from the, the beginning to include them in his salvation. Well, and that's true. But I think the context here leads us another way. It's broader than just Gentiles, Christ in you Gentiles. It's Christ in you every believer, whether you're Gentile or Jewish, it doesn't matter, the hope of glory. What we're talking about is the experience of having Christ come to live in us. People didn't see that coming. That's why it was a mystery. I think Kevin just mentioned a couple of weeks ago what some talk about is that God-shaped vacuum. That's, that's what Pascal called it, the, this brilliant philosopher noticing this common fact of existence. There, there's a spiritual dimension in all of us waiting to be satisfied, everyone trying to fulfill the void 
if not with God, then with something else, with relationships, with money, with possessions, with career, with clothing. You fill in the blank, just whatever. And since nature works against a vacuum, people keep trying to fill the one inside of them, searching for something that will fit. So they pall over the various options like there are pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, trying to find what will fit in there, find the right piece that will make it work. This insatiable, unsatisfied desire of our hearts really reveals that we are all missing God. There's an internal black hole inside of us where God and only God fits. And until we find a way to bring him into that space, we will at our very core be restless and unfulfilled in our lives. That's really God's clue to all of us. We were made for him. We were made for our, all of our longings for love and relationship and belonging and security and meaning and purpose and identity are ultimately met only in Christ. We were made for him. And we'll find our deepest longings met only in him. So people go rushing through life knowing deep down that something's missing. Like the woman at the well, she had tried to fill her life with relationships, with religion, but she was empty. She is still searching for something until Jesus filled her, never to thirst again. It's God's way to tell us there's something better. God uses that realization to bring us to him and then we get to house God. Nobody saw that coming. That black hole in us would close. The vacuum would be filled and he would do it. I mean, can you remember the first time you realized that Christ was willing to come to live within you? Why would he do that? Why would he come to live within us, frail and flawed and rebellious? It, you know, it, it's shocking to think about how he came to earth and became a man. It's shocking to think about all the fullness of God dwelling in him. But it's just as shocking to think that his plan would be to live in us. See, he doesn't just save us and, and let us know, hey, when, when we need him, you know, he'll be there, you know. Just, just turn to him and he'll be there. It's, not, it's more than that. It's better than that. He's right here. Better than that. He's right here in us. And what's that mean for us? Well, it means comfort, doesn't it? Comfort for every situation. It doesn't matter what you're going through right now. I don't, I don't know how lonely you feel right now, how desperate you feel right now, how defeated, how scared, how anxious. He's there. If you are a follower of Christ, if you've turned to him by faith, he is with you. Do you understand that? You don't face it alone. Whatever struggle you're going, you're not alone. There's comfort. Our transcendent Savior is with us. There's cleansing. He cleansed us from the stain of sin that had marked us. From, from, the, from the moment we were created, the sin that we came into life, sin had marked us. He cleansed us from that mark. He cleansed us from that stain and made us right. There's confidence because he lives in us and we have confidence to deal with whatever comes our way. 
But his living in me doesn't just mean confidence for this life, it also brings confidence for the life to come. That's why Paul says here in verse 27, Christ in us, the hope of glory. The hope of glory, our joyful confidence of glory. Glory, what we're, gonna, what, what we're, what we're guaranteed in heaven, all that we will experience there, all that we will belong to us there. We are confident of that because Christ lives in us. And that happened for all of us if we turn to him by faith alone. We, we knew something was missing, we turned to him, and, and then he came into our life. And that still grabs us today, that he would choose to live in us. We gain comfort, we gain cleansing, we gave confidence knowing that he lives there because the fullness of God is in him and he is in us. Paul continues, verse 1 of chapter 2, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. That verse always cracks me up. You ever feel sorry for people that haven't had the chance to beat you yet? <laughs> I struggle for those who have not personally seen my face. Maybe we would all feel that way if we were convinced that we would impact people the way Paul did. Verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. That's what he wanted them to grow, to become stable. It'd be, it'd be great to know we impacted people like that, wouldn't it? So convinced that we would impact people that way that you struggled for those who hadn't met you yet because your goal is to encourage them so they're, they're knit together that, that word's actually stronger than we may get the picture of there of knitting something together. It's actually like the, the idea of welding so that you can be welded together. It's a strong bond that we can all have because we're fully assured of God's mystery, the mystery of Christ himself. And what about him? That in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all the treasures. We don't need to go looking for something else. We don't need to have some new teaching that's out there. No, he's living in us and we're growing and serving and there's a stability to our faith so that we're not shaken. We're not shaken by circumstances. We're not shaken by other teachings. All because of Jesus who transformed our lives. You may know the story of, of William Borden. I talked about it a few years ago. It's, it's pretty well known, actually. In the early 1900s, William Borden, who was an heir to the Borden Dairy family. In early 1900s, he's 16 years old. He graduates from high school, and he's, and he's a multimillionaire. Graduates from high school and is going to go off to Yale to college, before he does that, his parents, uh, as a gift to him, give him a trip around the world, high, a graduation gift. 
And so he heads off to around the world. Years before that, he had given his life to Christ through the ministry of D.L. Moody. And as he's traveling around the world, he gets gripped by all of the people who don't know Jesus. And he just is overwhelmed by it. And he sends a letter back to his parents telling them, I'm going to give my life to reaching people for Christ. And he renounces his inheritance. Can you imagine? He comes back home, he goes off to Yale. He goes to Yale at the time when, you know, everything's sort of going theologically liberal and everything's changing and people are no longer interested in the truth of God's word. But he gets burdened by the students at Yale and so he starts having... Bible studies and prayer meetings just for the students. And, it, and there was 1,300 students at Yale at the time. By the time he's graduating as a senior, a thousand of them are meeting weekly in Bible studies because of the ministry of William Borden. Finishes at Yale, goes off to Princeton to go to theological seminary there, gets done with seminary, and, start, and starts to head for China where he's going to be a, uh, to try to reach the Muslim people in China. Stops on his way in, in Cairo, Egypt to learn Arabic. He's in school there for a while. And he's, as he's in school there, he gets burdened by the people of Cairo. <laughs> this is a guy who's not sitting still. I, I've been to Cairo, it's a mess. It's the largest city in Africa. It's the sixth largest city in the world, and it is dirty. It's a mess. There are people everywhere. wasn't quite as big when William Borden was there. It was 800,000 people, and he got burdened by the 800,000 people that were there, and he began to organize with other students how they could reach the people of Cairo. And they determined that they were going to go canvas the entire city, go door to door and, sh and hand out Christian literature and try to reach the people with the gospel of Christ. William Borden, as he's there, contracts spinal meningitis. And a month later, he dies. Can you imagine? A friend said, hey, you're going to waste your life. You gave up all that money? going to waste your life. But the word of his death came back to, it was wired back to, the, to, to America. And that story got printed in almost every major newspaper in the country. His biography says that a wave of sorrow went around the world. He not only gave up his fortune, but himself to be a missionary. But what happened was, as that story went to all those newspapers, thousands and thousands of young men and women read that story and realized they had a responsibility to step up and go reach their world for Christ.
inspired them to leave what they had and go reach people. The story goes that when his parents, Borden's parents got his Bible, they found written in it. Just after he had renounced his fortune, two words, no reserve. His father told him he'd always have a job in the company, but then at, last, at a later point, his father told him he'd never let him work in the company again. And Borden wrote in his Bible, no retreat. And then they discovered two more words written just before he died in Cairo, no regret. Was his life a waste? Not from God's perspective. You know, we can get in a mode of playing it safe in life. We tend to retreat from things that are hard. We look back over time, we have a lot of regrets. Let me ask you, how are you gonna live this week? I want to challenge you to live with no reserve. Don't hold back this week. Whatever it is, whatever you're doing, face, face it head on. Go for it. No reserve. No retreat. Don't always choose the easy path this week. There are times when God's will is not easy. Go forward anyway. Do what God is leading you to do. No regret. Don't live cautiously this week so that when the week's over, you can look back with no regret. Tucked away in a corner of the American cemetery in Cairo is William Borden's grave. And, and on the bottom of that stone, the words are engraved. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. What a great way to be remembered. See, when our transcendent Savior transforms us, he wants us to serve his purpose in the lives of others. He did it through the Apostle Paul. He did it through William Borden. And he wants to do it through you and through me. We've been given the message that Jesus lives in us. And it's our job to encourage each other and reach out to those who don't know him yet. That's our job. Let's not fail at it. We're driven to get it done because of our Savior and because of what he's done for us. Apart from Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. But with Christ, there's no explanation for not getting our job done. you do that this week and if you don't know him yet we're closing this service in just a minute but if you don't know him yet I want to encourage you turn to him today by faith alone he will give you new life he'll come to live in you he'll give you the assurance of heaven
the guarantee of heaven one day. And he'll transform your life and you will never, ever regret it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for transforming. So many of us that are here today, we've turned to you and we know what it is to have our lives changed by you. And we're so grateful to you for that. God, we ask for anyone that might be here hasn't had that moment in life where they've come to you. I pray, God, that they would come to that point today. But God, for all of us who have, Father, help us to live in a way that recognizes and reflects the reality of who you are and what you've done for us and what you'll do for others if they'll just turn to you. Thank you, God, for another day to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.